Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected. Subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say... You really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. This episode is part of our series on the 2021 Tour de France, and today we're going to be talking about iconic climbs of the Tour and some of our favourite moments from past races. I'm Matthew Loveridge, and today I'm joined by Simon Bromley and George Scott of Bike Radar. Um, This is a rare treat, actually, as uh, usually George in particular is too busy doing boss stuff to be on the podcast. This is the first time that I've ever recorded with him. There you go, Matthew. It's a rare treat both for you and our listeners, but great to be on the podcast. Good to have you. So we're going to go straight in. What do we expect climb-wise in the 2021 Tour de France? What what do we have to look forward to, Simon? So it's slightly more um, unusual Tour de France this year in, in that sense. So there are six mountain stages, but there are only three summit finishes and you know that's a kind of fewer number than I suppose we're used to seeing. So, but I, you know, maybe we'll go on to talk about this. But I think that might be a reflection of the fact that whilst we kind of, you know, everyone loves the mountain stage and they're, and they're great, they're not, they haven't been so good for creating big time gap, gaps in recent years. So they've kind of calmed down on the summit finishes, and we're, you know, we're seeing other things. Um, but of course, you know, there will still be plenty of mountains in this year's Tour de France. So. Is it going to make for a vintage tour this year? Does it have the right mix of uh, climbing and time trials? Because that tends to be the bit of the trade-off, doesn't it, sometimes when it comes to making those all-important time gaps, Simon? Yeah, I think so. And, uh, you know, we discussed this a little bit in last year's um, Tour de France podcast, why time trials have been kind of steadily disappearing from the Tour de France. And I think, you know, I think that's a lot to do with it. It was because for, you know, a number of years, if if you had a rider who could both climb really well and time trial really well that person tended to especially if there was an early time trial they take a you know this was the team sky model essentially take a take a big lead early on in the race through a time trial and then just defend for the rest of the race and obviously for the spectators that kind of defensive riding isn't always um 
interesting. Isn't always interesting. Yeah. Although obviously, you know, you could put the you could say that maybe the other teams should attack, but everyone starts defending, you know, come the final week, if there's a three minute gap to the yellow jersey, everyone starts defending their podium places. So it's not just the yellow jersey team who So it's always it's always a tricky balance to get that right. It is, yeah. And then because the Tour de France is so important, people will defend the top five, a top ten, you know, and so whether this is going to be a, a vintage edition of the Tour de France, you know, I think the vintage editions of any Grand Tours often come about through a bit of chaos. You know, if I think of vintage Grand Tours recently, the, the one that springs to mind is kind of Chris Froome's winning of the Giro d'Italia in 2018. But that came about as essentially, you know, of a rider who was not happy to defend a kind of podium position and was prepared to gamble it all on one chaotic raid in the mountains but whether we'll see that at the tour de france you know i can't you know i can't think of any riders who would gamble a podium position in the way that he did people often complain that racing isn't as exciting as it used to be and obviously maybe there's an element of rose tinted spectacles with that but if you were in charge of the bike race is there some like rule change or something that you would make to try and stimulate those exciting attacks so I think it's really tricky. And I think one of the things we often hear people asking for is the banning of power meters in racing because people sort of say, oh, you know, people just ride to their power meters. It makes them robots. They don't go into the red. I don't Personally, I don't think that's true because I think riders know their bodies and, you know, they're very in tune with their limits regardless of the power meter. I think what what really the power meter, the influence of power meters on the professional peloton is that actually the, the level across the professional peloton is now much more even than it used to be because i think everyone is now training to power and everyone's training very very professionally everyone has a coach and so we're not seeing attacks from really far out because the group that gets up the mountain is so much larger and so you know one person can't attack a group that's of you know 20 or 20 or 15 riders from 10 kilometers out on a climb they they it's you know that the maths doesn't they, they've sense. run the numbers and they know there's no point yeah yeah and and like i said it, you know it's a it's like you know grand tour racing is about minimizing time lost not about gaining time you don't have yeah. to gain time if you don't lose any so it, it's it's never gonna it's never gonna be one day racing yeah Right, let's go on and talk about some specific iconic climbs. And we're going to kick off with one that is perhaps most associated with the Tour de France these days, which is Mont Ventoux. So, Simon, can you talk us through the significance of Mont Ventoux and what, what it actually is as a climb? So Mont Ventoux is a uh, mountain in Provence in southern France. And um, it's, a really, it's a really odd mountain. It's a very iconic climb in the Tour de France. And obviously there have been lots of iconic moments uh you know obviously tommy simpson famously kind of collapsed and sadly died on the mountain the famous uh put me back on my bike moment which actually didn't happen i believe (laughs) i don't think that's a a legend no i don't think it happened but obviously so yeah so there's it was the 1967 tour de france so but there's a monument to him there and obviously there have you know since then there have been you know, uh, Merckx famously said that it was one of the hardest climbs he'd ever done. He had to be carried off the bike after he reached the top. You know, there were the duels between Armstrong and Pantani. And then obviously in more recent history, we saw Chris Froome crash into the back of a motorbike, smash his bike to bits and end up running for a few kilometers in a, in one of the most memed yes. <laughs> cycling things of, of recent history. But, it, I've, you know, the kind of special thing about that climb is that it just kind of, you know, it's not in a mountain range, really. It just kind of sits alone 
in the landscape and it kind of dominates the landscape so when you're kind of riding around there you it's it kind of it's always there on the horizon and it's the only thing and you can kind of see it and and there's three sides to it uh one there's a kind of easy side a medium side and then a very very hard side now traditionally the tour de france has used the hardest side which uh starts from the south in bedouin and that is about 22 kilometers long but there's a section of around 10 kilometers which goes from the kind of bottom to around halfway obviously uh, that is just incredibly hard it's around 10 percent average and it goes through these kind of it just kind of rears up straight ahead of you in, into these trees and there's no kind of wind or kind of air to cool you down so it can become very very oppressive and it yeah it, it's probably i would say the hardest climb i've i've ever ridden george i believe you've also ridden von too did you have that experience of that sort of muggy oppressive bit i have done yeah so I, i've ridden all three sides like simon has although unlike simon who's ridden them on the same day i've done them on different days um but that that ascent from bedouin is by by far the hardest as simon says you you kind of you start uh, you cut with a, a relatively kind of easy opening section out of the town and then it swings left into the forest and then just rears up to 10, 11% relentlessly for kilometre after kilometre. And as Simon says, no wind at all, very oppressive if it's hot, very muggy. Um, and because you can't see up the climb, you've got no gauge of how far you've been, how far you've got to go. And I think whether you're on a good day or a bad day, it's an extremely hard climb, an extremely hard section within the Vontu climb. And if you're on a bad day, it's very, very tough, as I can attest to. Um, I, when I think of Vontu, I think of that iconic moonscape at the top. So how does the feel of the climb change once you've got out of the forest section? Yeah, that's a really good point. So that forest section, as I say, is like the kind of first half of the climb. And then uh, the kind of, you know, it famously changes as you come up out of the forest and you go, past, you go past a place called uh, Chalet Reynard, which is just a, yeah, as it says, it's a small little chalet and there's a, you know you can stop for chips there, which you know if you're not aiming for the KOM time, you might as well. And then after that, it, it, it carries on. And as you say, it's this kind of like moonscape uh, landscape where there's no kind of trees and vegetation. And in, all of a sudden it becomes very exposed. And uh, when I was there, actually, the, the kind of couple of days we went to the 2013 Tour de France, it wasn't windy, but famously it can become extremely windy up there. So again, that might be an interesting thing. If it is very windy, you know, I, I expect we won't see too many riders running deep section wheels because that could be a problem because <laughs> it really is very, very exposed up there, but it's still very steep. And, but you can start to be able to see the top from there. Uh, but it kind of snakes in and toward in and away from the uh, from the top, and then there's the, obviously the kind of famous weather station on top of it. And it's yeah, it's a really it's a really fascinating climb. It, it's kind of it's it's kind of hard to describe, but it, it's it's like as you say, it's iconic for a reason. The, you know, that top section, you know, you were lucky to have a clear day or not not a windy day because it can get unbelievably windy up there. I think you know, the highest wind speed they've had is 320 kilometers an hour, according to uh, Wikipedia. Um, it wasn't quite as windy when I was at the top there, but it was extremely windy, um, which can make things tricky when you're climbing, you know, can blow you across the road, particularly as, uh, as Simon says, if you've got deep section wheels, you know, they're perhaps not the best option for a windy day on Von 2. But, you know, I think more than that, the descent can be very, very tricky if it is a windy day. Um, to the extent that when I rode it, it was part of an event of an event and 
all three days were meant to finish at the top of Vontu, but two of them had to get shortened and finish at uh, Shelley Renard because it was just too windy, although we did continue to the top um, just for fun afterwards. And yeah, made the descent very interesting. This is a climb, by the way, that is going to favour the absolute pure climbers, isn't it? This is not one where the kind of all-rounders can fake it because it is that hard. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, as I said earlier, like the, the level is better. So the kind of peloton is getting further and further up the climb. But because of the gradient, um, you know, the, the speeds are lower. And so there is less of a drafting effect than you would get on a kind of, you know, five or 6% climb in the Alps, uh, say. So, yeah, like the winners, you know, the winners who have won summit finishes on Mont Ventoux is a kind of list of pure climbers. And the most recent winner... This year would have been Miguel Angel Lopez, who rides for Team uh, Movistar. And, you know, he's a, a pure climber. Um, I think, will we see those guys winning this year's stage? Possibly not, because it's, whilst this is a double ascent of Von 2, it's not a summit finish. The, the stage this year goes over the summit twice and it actually finishes on a descent. And the descent from the top into Morselen where the stage finishes is quite a kind of fast sweeping descent and so there may be an opportunity for any kind of you know sort of slightly more ruler type climbers who have lost a little bit of time over the top they may be able to catch up on the descent but depends how good at descending they are yeah um okay to finish off on two uh you've both done it so are you raring to go and do it again or are you happy to have taken that one off i would quite like to go do it again i think you know when i went i you know, I was trying to be cool and I took a, a 53 39 tooth chain set and an 11 28 because I thought that was climbing gears uh, and it was not enough. <laughs> uh, so I would like to go back with a, a compact and maybe an 11 32 or 11 34 and, and maybe do it again. I think, you know, we did the Bedouin side uh, second in the day when we did all three and it was too hot. I would do the Bedouin side first. <laughs> yeah so yeah i would do the bedouin side first and i would like to set a good time and well i say a good time i would like to set a, a, a personal best time but yeah i would like to go do it again because it was it is a fantastic mountain and actually you know doing all three in a day it, it's it's you know i'm not the fittest cyclist in the world i'm not i'm not i'm not too terrible but it is it's 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 manageable but hard how about you george I would be keen to to go back and and perhaps have a crack at, at of doing the triple that that Simon's done. Uh, you know, I think for me again, would it be manageable? I don't know. I think I'd probably find it a bit tougher than Simon would, but I would definitely take a compact, definitely take probably an eleven thirty or even even an eleven thirty two cassette on the back. Uh, blessed as we are with very generous gear in these days, um, and I think it's worth saying as well that the riding in the area surrounding Bontu is absolutely stunning as well. So you know, it doesn't necessarily have the full range of mountain climbs or mountain passes that you have in the Alps or the Pyrenees, um, but kind of beautiful kind of lavender fields and um, gorges and, and kind of rolling mountains and rolling hills. So definitely a lot to explore there beyond Vontu, which is obviously what we associate the Provence region for. Sounds wonderful. All right, on to our next one. We're going to talk about the Tourmalet. I said that weird. Tourmalet? 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 Um, George, can you set the scene for us? I can. So, yeah, the Tourmalet is an interesting climb, a really interesting climb. And, and I think one, as a mountain pass, it's the one that's been included in the Tour de France the most, first back in 1910. And, you know, again, having ridden this climb just, or any mountain climb, you know, trying to think back as to how difficult it was then with the bikes they had, how heavy the bikes were, the gearing they had, how rough the roads would have been. 
Um, unimaginable, really, compared to the smooth roads and, and the brilliant bikes we have these days. But it's been included in the Tour de France. I think it's the 88th time it will be in the race this year, so almost every edition. Climbs to 2,115 metres, which is often the highest point of the race or, or certainly the highest point in the Pyrenees, or actually the day before, the stage before this year's stage goes a little bit higher. So that's stage 17 and the Tourmalade comes a day later on stage 18. And I think interestingly, whereas Von Tu's on stage 11, so the middle of the race and perhaps the GC contenders, you know, whilst it's a good opportunity, it's, uh, you know, maybe likely to be a bit more cagey with so many stages to come. This is the final mountain stage with a flat stage to follow, then the time trial and then Paris. So if you're perhaps one of the general classification contenders who is a bit more climb focused and, you know, might not be able to make up too much time in the time trial, this is your last opportunity. Um, and there are two ascents, one from the east and one from the west. Uh, this year it comes from the eastern side, which is from San marie de Campan, and it's 17.1 kilometres at 7.3%. So like Von Tue, very long, perhaps not as steep as Von Tue in certain sections. It's you know fairly consistent most of the way up. Starts in the valley, goes through a kind of beautiful wooded section, kind of overlooking the valley and, and kind of with the cliffs towering above you and then starts to open up into that kind of classic Pyrenean kind of mountainscape. And it's yeah, absolutely beautiful. Definitely uh, a tough ascent, but a brilliant one to ride. And another one that you've done, I believe. It is. Yeah, I did it in 2014, I think, which, you know, I've never been the fittest cyclist in the world, but you know, it was probably my best year on the bike. And, you know, rode it with a friend at the time and, you know, we kind of took it very steady. And if you can take it steady again, because it's fairly consistent, it's not the most difficult climb in the world. Obviously, if it's in the Tour de France and you're riding it at, at full gas and it's very different, but, um, and, you know, an absolutely beautiful ascent and being in the Pyrenees, you're spoiled for choice in terms of linking it together with other climbs or spending the weekend there. So beautiful for us and beautiful to watch, but perhaps not so uh, beautiful for the riders racing it at the Tour. The Tourmalet was the site of... I think one of the most memorable moments for me personally as a spectator and like watching on TV, that is, I wasn't there in person, but in the 2010 Tour de France, in the wake of the Chengay incident with Andy Schleck and Alberto Contador, uh, the Tourmalet was where they had a sort of duel quite late on in the race. And it was this incredibly foggy scene and you had like the headlights of the vehicles and just the two riders duking it out. And ultimately they crossed the line together, essentially, but it was such an incredible moment. Do you have any favourite Tourmalet moments, Simon? I think, you know, I think that's one of mine too, because I think like you, you know, we're a similar age and we probably got into road cycling around the same time. And I think, you know, like looking back on that, it, it's really notable to see that they, uh, Andy Schleck attacked the uh, Lee group with 10 kilometres to go. And you just wouldn't see a GC contender do that these days. You know, like, like I said, for various reasons, because the group, you know, there would still be domestiques left with 10 kilometers to go on a mountain, on a mountain uh, top finish these days. But yeah, it, I think the weather really played a part that day and they're kind of the disappearing into the fog. It really mm. made you feel kind of like that they were just disappearing into the clouds and it kind of drove home how high they were going. But, um, but yeah, you know, that, that was, those were kind of, <laughs> as you say, Andy Schleck versus Contador, that was a, a real kind of, that though their, their rivalry really defined that era. And it's interesting to look back on that and think that that was Team Sky's first year. And obviously Wiggins, you know, didn't have the tour that he perhaps would have wanted. Um, but Contador and Schleck are maybe the kind of last two kind of 
people who you know, obviously Contador could time trial as well, but I think we think of him as really a pure climber. And I think those those were the last tours that where I think two pure climbers really duked out for the overall victory. Yeah, because the nature of racing has changed quite a lot for better or for worse. And there was that particularly that era in subsequent years where when it was still Team Sky was just steamrollering the race, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, I think you know, I think Team Sky came in, and and it's not all down to budget. Some of it is down to obviously like kind of uh, resource management and and you know focusing really on the Tour de France rather than kind of spreading. You know, obviously Schleck rode for Saxo Bank, and Saxo Bank had an eye on the classics and the rest of the races in the year. Whereas Team Sky really came in, and they built a team around specifically the Tour de France, and and as, and as you said, like kind of changed the way it was race, but. Yeah, like Contador was on his own from 10 kilometers to go and so was Andy Schleck. And so we got to see 10 kilometers of two GC contenders duking it out, you know, man to man. And we, like, I can't, I, I can't remember seeing that since. I, I really recommend looking up that specific um, stage on YouTube because it is, it was such an exciting moment of racing. I just went and looked back at it again today for the first time in years and got a little of that like heart palpitation again from it because it was really great. Yeah. And the tech is interesting as well. Looking back then, you know, like the kind of seeing how, uh, like the, you know, they're both wearing race leaders jersey. So Schleck was in the white young riders jersey and Contador was obviously in the yellow jersey, but they're kind of, they're not, because they're not team issue jerseys, they're a little bit baggy and they don't really fit. And, you know, they're, they're, yeah, they're using kind of deep section carbon wheels, but there's no aero bikes, you know, there's. (laughs) No, it really, it feels like a a different era now, doesn't it? Mm. Yes. Yeah, I think it was interesting as well because it was 100 years since the Tourmalet was first introduced at the Tour de France. They rode both ascents on consecutive stages, or they certainly rode the Tourmalet on consecutive stages. So, you know, for that year's Tour, it was absolutely the showpiece climb. And, you know, as the race turned out, it was the showpiece event in terms of the action as well. So, yeah, definitely an iconic moment, both in history of the Tourmalet, but also the Tour de France of the last 10 or 20 years. Any final Tourmalet thoughts before we move on? No, I haven't ridden it. And and actually, like, I think that that whole that whole area of France I've I've not been to. And so I really would like to go there. And I, you know, I'm this is as a kind of Brit, we don't have anything that can compare to things like this. And so the sheer scale of it. Yeah. Like, you know, obviously we have a few long climbs, right? But if you if you think of something like Great Dunfell, that's that's a that's a very long climb by British standards, and you know it has the little kind of weather station at the top, and so people kind of dub it the British Von Two, but actually, like it, you know, it doesn't it doesn't compare. And so, going you know taking your kind of bike to these areas of the world and doing some real climbs and getting over, getting you know really high up and and into the altitude and into the clouds and all of these things and experiencing how the kind of temperature can drop ten degrees and the weather can change like. It's, it's special it is yeah it genuinely genuinely is special and um i i, I think like i said the tourmalade it's, it's on the it's got to be on the bucket list yeah yeah and as an area obviously being in the middle of the pyrenees you've got so many iconic climbs surrounding it so the, the cold obisque and then the the hortacam i think it's just down the valley from um from the tourmalade and that the two are kind of often linked together when they have been in the tour de france so I was going to say george what when when you went what what kind of bike were you riding you had rim brakes presumably you have carbon wheels that is a good question. So it was, uh, yeah, as I say, it was back in 2014, I think. So it was when I was working as a cycling journalist and 
uh, you know, being in the privileged position that we are where we get to ride lots of nice bikes. I can't remember the specific bike that I took with me. Um, that's a real one percenter yeah, problem. Not too, able to too many bikes. Which amazing oh, I can't bike. remember them all. Which amazing. <laughs> too oh. many bikes. Too many trips to the Pyrenees. <laughs> Def- yeah, de- as I say, definitely uh, a perk of the job. But yeah, you know, it would have been a lightweight carbon road bike with rim brakes, which was almost the perfect bike for the job because we had great weather on the whole. It was dry, and you know, descending mountain passes, which we haven't really spoken about, yeah, in itself is an absolute thrill you know the the climbs are beautiful and can be really really tough particularly if you're kind of um not as fit as you need to be or or you know you're on a bit of a tough day but the descents are just you know out of this world kind of descending at um you know 40 50 miles an hour for kind of mile after mile it's yeah a breathtaking experience and you're definitely one that kind of tests tests your nerves at times um but yeah having having a dry day you know rim brakes were, were kind of all you needed there as long as you don't have carbon rims that's probably a different a different question but um yeah, brilliant experience. Great stuff. Right, on to the next one. We're going to talk about the Galibier, Simon. Yeah, so this this is another another one of those of, of the climbs that I've I've actually ridden, and this is a really big one. It's um so the the, the climb itself uh from from uh, Valois is only 18 kilometers long, but I think most people would tend to start from Saint-Michel de Morian and include the kind of uh, the smaller climb of the Col de Telegraph, uh, which has a, then a kind of 15-minute descent off the, the kind of mini summit to that, to the to Valois to start the Galibier. But if you include the Telegraph, which I think you should if you're going to go ride it because it's worth it's a, lov- it's a lovely climb, but that makes for a total of uh, 35 kilometers, which for a climb is is pretty long. <laughs> um, and I think. I don't think the Galibier is necessarily like the hardest climb in the world. I think like George said, if, if you, you know, if you, if you're not racing and, and you take easy enough gears, you can kind of winch yourself up it, uh, you know, slowly. But for me, my, what I remember is the kind of altitude and it gets up very, very high, uh, over 2000 meters. And actually I think it might be over maybe two and a half thousand meters in total, which, because there's, I think it's over 2000 meters altitude gain but it's over two and a half thousand meters in kind of total height. And, and I remember, you know, I, we'd kind of, I was riding with a friend, we dropped a few other people in the group, you know, and you, once you see the summit, you start thinking, oh, I wonder if I can attack my friend here. You know, I'm feeling all right. We start to attack. And, and I remember very vividly the feeling of, you know, getting up out of the saddle and trying to kind of haul a bit of effort out and then immediately realizing that I couldn't really breathe. (laughs) So uh, it's not a problem we're used to in this country. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. So it's something I'd, I'd never sort of experienced before. But um, you know, another kind of iconic climb of the Tour de France. It's got the Pantani Memorial halfway up, which is, you know, that's quite, quite nice to see. And and though I wasn't young enough to kind of see this live, I wasn't I wasn't watching the Tour de France at this point because I was too young. But there, you know, the kind of images of Pantani attacking Jan Ulrich in the, uh, I think it was a 1998 Tour de France in the rain. And, you know, I've seen those videos on YouTube many times. And it, like, again, it's like, it's interesting to look back at the kit and Pantani, I think he even literally stopped to put on a the baggiest rain jacket you've ever seen. And uh, like, it's not, you know, it's not that long ago, like <laughs> 1998 isn't that long ago, but but knowing what we know now about kind of aerodynamics and all of those things, like you would never ever do that, and it must have cost him so much time. I think that's one of the the really cool things about riding these climbs. I haven't ridden the Galibier, but you know, not only is it the challenge and the altitude and the scenery and just the whole experience of 
being on the mountain. You know, if you are a fan of cycling and of the Tour de France, it's kind of reliving and reimagining those moments in your head as you are climbing. And if you're riding with a friend and you're kind of fairly evenly matched in terms of your fitness, kind of having you know a little attack out of a hairpin or on a steep section, you know, that that almost kind of brings the whole experience to life rather than it just being you know, a very beautiful mountain, but just isolated in itself. It's the kind of history that's kind of added into it as well, which I think, as I say, really adds to that experience of being on the mountain and climbing it. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, I think a bit like the Tourmalet, you know, the, the, the Galibier has been in the Tour de France for a really long time. So uh, it was first used in the Tour de France in 1911. And I think only three riders uh, in the race that year, managed to get up it without walking. Uh, it wouldn't have been tarmac then. You know, gra- this was gravel before it was cool. But um, you know, like it, it, it's it's a you know it's a real like like George says. You know, he you know we all ride nice bikes these days. And to be fair, even if you're not riding a kind of you know Dura Ace equipped superbike, the bikes that you know most road bikes these days are miles better than the kind of single speed bikes riders would have been riding back then. And it is incredible to think that anyone was able to get up these these hills on the kind of gears and bikes and tires that they had to use back then it, it you know cycling has changed and i think we talked about this in another podcast uh recently that cycling is becoming much more of a, a speed sport than a kind of ultra endurance sport and that's not because the roads have changed but because the technology has changed and, and it, it is changing the nature of the sport and i'm sure some people will lament that are there any particular moments from very recent history that you'd pick up on on the Galibio? I think for me it was um, the 2011 Tour de France. So, you know, going back 10 years, but it was the tour that uh, I think Tommy Vockler took the yellow jersey, either on stage eight or stage nine. I think it was the end of stage eight. And, you know, it was obviously the big, well, one of the French hopes back then, but, you know, more of a, a kind of a ruler or a puncher, you know, good, in, good on kind of short punchy climbs. Um and managed to hold on to the jersey up until the Galibier stage, I think 10 stages later, I think despite going through, uh, you know, the Pyrenees beforehand, I think it was the Pyrenees that came before the Alps that year. And, you know, it was such a gutsy display as you'd expect from Vokli, you know, with the full kind of, uh, the full range of kind of facial expressions to go with it. A lot of tongue action, wasn't there? A lot of gurning, a lot of tongue action, but, you know, one of the real kind of valiant Tour de France, uh, you know, kind of performances of the last 10 years. Um, and then, you know, came, came so close, you know, every stage you think, you know, is he going to lose it? Is he going to lose it? He held on to it, but then it was on the Galibier that he finally cracked because it is such a long climb, such a hard climb. Um, but yeah, for me, that's one of the standout moments. Yeah. That was particularly memorable one for the fans. I think that's it. Um, and, and, you know, as, you know, as we talked about earlier, we don't, you know, in, in the recent history of the Tour de France, where we have had the dominance of team Sky and team Ineos, we haven't necessarily had races like that where you've had the kind of the classic rivalries or the kind of long range attacks and perhaps you know there's other reasons for that as well but you know that was definitely an iconic moment and it was Andy Schleck again who won that stage so you know a rider who kind of really had the panache to perform in the high mountains and and then sadly kind of disappeared out of the sport kind of very quickly um but yeah Tommy Vockler all the way for me yeah uh, that was a great tour uh right on to our final climb again a very big name Alp Duez, George. So Alp Duez, yeah. I mean, what to what to say about this one? I think you know we've we've obviously focused here today on four iconic Tour de France climbs, and I think you know you could ask four people and they could each describe any of them as their favourite. But you know, Alp Duez, I think, is really the one that you know captures the public's imagination um, for a number of reasons. You know, again, this is one that I've ridden 
Um, so I've ridden three of the four that we've spoken about, not Galibier. Um, and as a climb, you know, probably of the four, I think it's probably the least interesting in that, you know, it's on a, a kind of a main road that leads to a ski resort. The scenery is beautiful because you're in the Alps, but, you know, you're, you don't necessarily have the kind of the isolation that you do at the top of the Galibier or the top of the Tourmalet. Um, but I think it's it's the history and the hairpins, you know, the 21 hairpins, that's such an iconic... The way the road is sort of draped down that incredible gradient, isn't it? Because it's like the helicopter shot of Alpe d'Huez is like the iconic Tour de France view, isn't it? That's it. You know, those those hairpins are everything. They make they make the climb. Um, and, you know, you have, the, you have signs on each hairpin kind of noting a former winner on Alpe d'Huez. Um, you know, it's actually a climb that's been included in the Tour less than you know some of the other mountain passes we've we've mentioned and and the fact that it's not necessarily a pass is part of that so the tourmalet and the galibier are often included mid-stage um for them the stage to descend down the other side of the climb and finish elsewhere in the alps of the pyrenees whereas outdoors has typically been included as a stage finish so um it's actually been included in the tour less since the 50s um but yeah it's those hairpins and also the images that you get from the tour from dutch corner and the fans and and the chaos, really. You know, I haven't been on the mountain during the tour, but you know, I think as a cycling fan, that that again is a you know to ride it as a bucket list experience. But to be on the climb during the tour, you know, again, I think it's something you have to tick off, and and hopefully will do in the future. Have you ridden that one, Simon? No, yeah. See, that's one I haven't ridden, and I think to be to be honest, I've never really kind of even though it is is it's definitely a bucket list climb, as you say, because it's kind of that iconic name and you know, the iconic switchbacks. And as you say, if you were to think of you know, the kind of template Tour de France climb, that's it, isn't it? But if, if, if I, you know, if I had a choice of going to ride any kind of climb now, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be the first on my list because I kind of think of it as just a ski station resort climb. And I know that like ultimately without the fans and without the kind of Tour de France caravan and everything that's going on, it's just kind of like a wide road, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, the, the, I think again, it's the it's the hit the history, the fact the history's there, and as you know, if you go in there as a cycling fan, both as a cyclist and a fan of the Tour de France, that that kind of that makes the experience. But yeah, you know, I agree, it's not necessarily one that you know, it's not particularly high. It goes to one thousand eight hundred fifty meters, which is obviously a lot higher than what we have here in the UK. But you know, you can get a lot higher in the Alps. You know, the Glibier is you know a good eight hundred meters on top of that, so it doesn't necessarily have the altitude. You know, the scenery is stunning because you're in the Alps, but it doesn't necessarily have the kind of isolation and the kind of pure drama of being in, you know, the very kind of peaks of the mountains. Um, so it's a brilliant climb. It's one that you have to ride. But, you know, I, I agree that of the four, it's probably the one that's, you know, in terms of what it's like to ride as an experience, probably fourth on the list for me. I think it's, you know, what what impresses me about uh, Out of the Wares and obviously when people race up it is that the, the, the speed at which they go up it because it's a good road and it's quite a wide road and you can take the corners at, at quite a lot of speed, which sounds ridiculous when we're talking about a really long mountain. But the kind of uh, Roman Bardet has the Strava KOM and his average speed for it was uh, just over 19 kilometers an hour. But obviously, you know, not every pro is on Strava, so I'm sure... I can't remember what Marco Pantani's KOM for it was, but I'm sure there have been faster ascents in races. But um, I've, you know, in doing a little bit of research for this podcast, uh, it's very funny to look at the Strava top 10 and see a friend of Bike Radar, Andrew Fever, just sneaking into the top 10 in ninth place, um, who apparently went over on the 3rd of September 2018 and rode up it in a staggeringly 
quick time of 39 minutes and 51 seconds. And of course, so Andrew wouldn't have been doing that in a race, which is absolutely bananas to me. Yeah, that'll be on an open road as be well. On an, yeah, on an, open, on an open road. No no kind of draft. I'm assuming there's no one who could have given him a toe. So, um, But I think, George, you said, uh, you said uh, a little bit earlier today that a good amateur time is under an hour. Yeah, you know, that, that's kind of the the benchmark for, for Abduez. And when I was there, uh, and I'm, I'm sure this is still a thing, but there's a midweek time trial held throughout the summer or throughout the months that you can kind of ride the climb um, from Borg de Wassan to the, the kind of the village or the town in, in the valley. And I think it's on a, on a Wednesday or a Thursday and it's kind of a mass start event with, you know, a proper start line in the town and you know, a countdown. And um, so you kind of set out for you know the opening few hundred meters in the flat before you hit the climb kind of full gas because you're in a group and it's all very exciting and then you swing left i think it is onto the climb and it's the steepest section uh, the, the bottom section which is the steepest on Aptowiz. um you know a double digit gradient i think for the first couple of hairpins at least and it's really tough and if you've kind of gone a little bit quick even on that first kind of flat opening section you quickly kind of find your speed shall we say on on that kind of steep uh, opening section of the climb um but i mean that's definitely a great experience if you are going to ride out to it doing that time trial is brilliant because uh, i think you have a timing chip so you get an official time you can see if you do go in under an hour you get a certificate as well which is quite a nice one to kind of put in the photo album at home um but yeah you know again i wrote that in 2015 i think so you know back when i was a little bit slimmer a little bit fitter um and it you know it's a very like any of these climbs you know as we mentioned earlier it's unlike anything we have in the uk in terms of the length of or the distance and the length of time that you're climbing so judging that effort and pacing that effort particularly when the gradient is changing is really difficult but you know such a satisfying experience getting to the getting to the top knowing you've kind of done a good time or uh you know personal best as it was for me what what was your time did you just say (laughs) (laughs) oh his memory's gone fuzzy Uh, no i I actually look back on uh on my instagram account because i obviously took a picture of the certificate and you know posted on instagram as you'd need to Uh, i did 53 minutes 41 seconds so um very respectable by your your own benchmark you said a decent amateur time was under an hour you smashed it so more than a decent performance yeah uh, yeah i was i was happy with it at the time um you you mentioned pantani earlier simon i think the his record was supposedly 37 minutes 35 seconds not quite pantani speeds then but no he's put a good kind of uh what's he put into me kind of 16 minutes and 13 kilometers which is pretty impressive it's not bad. <laughs> Here's a question for you though, Simon. You might not have ridden Alpe d'Huez, but have you ridden Alpe de Zwift? I have. Yeah, I have actually ridden Alpe de Zwift a number of times. And uh, yeah, so, that, so for those who don't know, Alpe de Zwift is a climb in the virtual cycling game Zwift and it's modelled on Alpe d'Huez. Um, and actually, I have, yeah, I've done that quite a few times and that's, that's a really good one. I've not done any of the Zwift races up there because I'm afraid of getting absolutely spat. But um yeah, I've done it on my own and I've done a few, I used to do, um, I say I used to, I still do it. I'm still this sad. Instead of doing a kind of traditional 20 minute FTP test, I quite enjoy doing a, a mountain time trial on Alpe de Zwift because it's kind of more of a 45 minute effort or so. And, um, that's a, a more accurate FTP test than a 20 minute test. So there you go. There's a tip for you. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of funny you say that because, um, when I did up to it, because it is about between 45 minutes or an hour's climb, it is actually quite a good way to to set your FTP if you are doing it as a as a kind of full gas effort, as they'd say. But um, yeah, I, I've also done it on Alpha Zwift, and you know, credit to Zwift, it is very realistic in terms of the gradient changes and you know, even the scenery and obviously the way that the road kind of is mapped. But 
you know, like any of these things, being there in in the in the flesh is the way to do it. I I think, like you said earlier, like you know what, you know what you're missing on Zwift is that kind of the feeling of looking over your shoulder and and seeing the kind of the landscape, but also the descent as well. You know, when you get to the, when you're doing, <laughs> whenever whenever I climb out the Zwift, I turn the I turn it off at the top because I can't be bothered to sit there and coast on the trainer for ten minutes whilst whilst your kind of avatar zooms back down. It just seems so. It seems so mundane, whereas obviously the the experience of descending a mountain pass in the real world is, you know, fantastic. It's it's so much fun. I mean, provided you can uh, control your bike, anyway. But <laughs> when when you get in the flow as well, I think there's kind of two things there. You know, when you're when you're climbing and you kind of get into the swing of things on on a mountain pass, it's it's a really good feeling, kind of knowing that you're kind of performing to your best almost. But you know, also when you go down the other side and you you kind of get through the first few hairpins and then you kind of really get into the swing of it and you kind of, uh, you know, almost become as one at one with the bike, which is a bit of a cliche thing to say, but you kind of, you do really feel that when you're descending well. Um, but, you know, I think again, I haven't been in the job and having ridden with a few pro riders or ex pros on climbs, you very quickly realize, but not only are they unbelievably quick going uphill, they're also unbelievably quick, even more so going downhill. It's terrifying. I think the speeds that they, descender and we were talking earlier about being in the grappetto and how those riders have to kind of be on the absolute edge when descending to try and kind of make up time so yeah obviously insanely kind of talented bike riders at the tour de france but you know a fantastic experience if you're just a a kind of rank amateur as uh, as i am uh that's good place actually before we wrap up um have you got one good piece of advice for anyone thinking of going and tackling one of these climbs as an amateur simon yeah i would take um very easy gears because you know you'll never you'll you will always have that moment when you kind of you know you try and click to a to an easier gear and find that you've you've run out of cassette and it's you know that that moment <laughs> you know even if it's like even at even at your best if you can you know I again like I took a 53 39 and I, and I'm telling you now it wasn't enough it you know you, you I, I spent I went up the went up the Galibier at probably 60 rpm and <laughs> and if you are doing one of these iconic climbs, you want it to be an enjoyable memory, even yeah. if there is suffering involved. Yeah, I think it's just because, you know, you, you know, cycling, road cycling, especially as a sport that kind of valorizes suffering. But, you, you know, we are like, you know, it's a holiday. And like you say, you do want to enjoy it. And actually, you know, you'll probably go faster anyway for taking easier gears. But it's just having that having that range and being able to click down so that when it gets steep, you can maintain a decent cadence and not just kind of ruin your legs. Like it will make it so much more fun. So don't sort of think like, well, I need to take my dinner plate front chain rings because it, it's, you're not a pro. <laughs> you're not a pro and you're not a pro. And let, well, unless you are a pro and you're listening to this excellent podcast in case in that case, well done you. But no, for most people you'll have a much, you'll have much more fun if you take easy gears. How about you, George? Yeah, that that's exactly it. I'd echo, I'd echo that. Yeah, I think, you know, think about what you want your easiest gear to be and then probably add a gear if that's possible. You know, add a sprocket on the cassette. You know, if you're thinking about taking a 28, take a 30 if you can. Um, you know, these climbs are hard and, you know, as, as we've said, you know, it is kind of fun racing up there to a degree, whether that's kind of against yourself or against a mate, but, you know, also it is about having fun and, you know, enjoying the history, enjoying the scenery, you know, enjoying the challenge. And um, the challenge is a lot better if you've got appropriate gear. And, and I think, you know, we're lucky these days with the gearing options we do have. You know, a few years ago, it would have been a 5339 and then perhaps a triple, you know, two kind of very 
uh, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum. Whereas now, you know, it's very rare to buy an off-the-shelf bike with a 5339 chain set, much more likely to be a, a kind of semi-compact or a compact. So yeah, I think think about your gear and I think that's the main piece of advice we'd offer. Great stuff. Right. That seems like a good place to leave it. Thank you very much, George. Thank you very much, Simon. Um, please do subscribe to the Bike Radar podcast if you don't already and make sure you listen to the rest of the episodes in this series about the Tour de France and check out all our excellent coverage on bikeradar.com. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bike Radar.